Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Okay, here we go. Here we go. So how many of you have your Bibles on you tonight? Raise your hand. Okay, a couple, couple tables over there not doing too good. For those watching online, stop watching and go and get your Bible. And if you don't know where it is, find it. And if you still don't know where it is, turn off your computer and drive down to your local bookstore. Okay. We've got a lot to cover tonight. The epiphany or theophany of our Lord, traditionally in the East and West, uh, known primarily for the revelation of the baptism of the Lord. In the West... In the old days, if you will, three feasts were celebrated on January 6th, on Epiphany or Theophany, uh, the baptism of the Lord, the visitation of the Magi, and the wedding at Cana. Three feasts celebrated together. But as the visitation of the Magi kind of overshadowed the others, then the baptism of the Lord was moved to January 13th, if I have my dates correctly, and then eventually by Paul VI to the Sunday following January 6th, which was then given just to the Magi. But traditionally, tomorrow would be the celebration of the baptism of the Lord, as it still is in the Orthodox East. And so we have the wonderful opportunity tonight to take a look at the baptismal account of our Lord and to ask some questions, which I'm sure you're all asking, which is... Why in the world was Jesus baptized? Why am I asking that question? Come on. No sin, no need of baptism, right? Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Now, right, yes, okay, I understand your point. And the point is correct. But there still was a need in the mission of our Lord for his baptism, and that's what we're going to take a look at tonight. So, get out your Bibles, and let's take a look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Before we begin reading the text, and don't start reading without me now, hold on, hold on. Before we start beginning to read the text, my goal here, you're not going to remember three quarters, 99% of what I say up here tonight, but I hope that you're going to start to get some principles down as we're doing biblical studies together. And so what's the first thing I'm going to say to you when you open your Bible? If you want to know what a passage has to say, what its meaning is, what are you going to, what are you going to ask yourself? A text? Go ahead. Without a context? Is no text at all. Exactly. Context, context, context. Okay? And within that context, we will start to see revealed to us the Word of God in its historical context as the author meant it. Let me tell you something. Yes, the Gospels, the Bible itself is written for us, but it was written within a 
within a historical context to a particular people. Let's not forget that. And until we start to realize and see the Gospels from that perspective, to stand in the shoes of the Apostles, to stand with John the Baptist on the edge of the Jordan River as some of us have done together, to stand there and see our Lord approach, to see the heavens open and the Spirit of God descend upon Him, until we start to see the Bible in that way, I believe we will be frustrated in our ability to read the Bible with profit. All right. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to go ahead and read uh, the entirety of chapter 3, verse 1 through... um, Well, I'll decide when we're going to stop. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then went out to him Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So imagine, we're not talking about, you know, five people. Okay, People were flocking to him, fleeing Jerusalem, crowding around him, and out in the desert... Out in the desert, and it wasn't like 7-Elevens next door. Okay? Flocking to him out in the middle of the wilderness. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that benefits repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire." His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led out by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted for forty days and forty nights. And afterward, he was hungry." Context, context, context. If you ask yourself the questions, who, what, why, where, when, if you ask those questions and you begin to answer those questions, you'll be well on your way to understanding the text. It takes patience, yes, but this is not written like the New York Times or the Washington Post where I was going to say fact upon fact is listed. (laughs) Maybe that's a bad example. But you get my point. 
the author is inviting us into the story, asking us to ask him the questions that he places in the mouths of the Pharisees, the Jews, of John the Baptist, to be able to see what is taking place, to ask ourselves who, what, why, where, and when, to ask ourselves the questions, where was Jesus? Where was he coming from? Answer me that question. Where was he coming from? In Galilee. In Galilee. Yeah, where in Galilee? In Nazareth, exactly. He made his way down the Jordan Valley. Probably at least, at least a day's walk, but probably more like two or even three days walk down to where, he, where John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River. What was John doing baptizing? Huh? What was John doing baptizing? I think oftentimes we think we have this idea that baptism is for the Christians. But here we've got a Jew baptizing. Why were the Jews baptizing and what did they mean by it? Why were people flocking to John in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere? What was it about what John was preaching that was driving them out of the cities? All of Judea, it says, Jerusalem was flocking to him. Imagine what you think the leaders, the leaders, okay, okay. What do you think... I got more important things to say. What do you think the leaders in Jerusalem thought about John the Baptist? The people were going to him and leaving them. All right. Can we go back, I think, a couple slides there? There you go. A little view from Nazareth. Now, obviously, that's a little bit of a a nice picture. Nazareth is a built-up city now. But I wanted to give you a sense of of the pine trees and so forth, and the beautiful view out to the Sea of Galilee in the Jordan River, okay? Okay, and here you go. I don't have a pointer, but you can see Nazareth right up there. You see it? Okay, okay, and here's Jericho. Jesus would have been baptizing right at the Jordan, at the heads of the, Jor- of the Jordan River, right near Jericho, five minutes away. Okay, from Jericho. It's right there. You remember who crossed the Jordan River at Jericho? Joshua. Joshua crossed the Jordan River at Jericho. Do you know what Joshua's name is in Greek? Jesus. It's the same name. And Jesus is going to go to that very spot where Joshua crossed the Jordan River and come back into the Holy Land. Okay? So John is down here baptizing and made his way. Go ahead to the next slide there. And you can see a nice, really a beautiful picture of the, of the Jordan Valley, Jordan River. It's not all like that everywhere. I just chose one of the nicer pictures. But you can see, it's very beautiful. And imagine this river flowing through the desert. Okay, because on both sides of this, if you go outside of those bushes, it's just desert. Okay, so they're flocking to him in the middle of the wilderness. Certainly the Jews knew of a ritual bath, a washing, okay, the mikvah bath. They knew of these ritual washings. So I asked myself the question, what was it about what John was doing that drew so much attention? Certainly they knew of ritual baths, of cleansing, of even of repentance. Well, what was it that John was doing that was causing them to flock to him? He was certainly doing something that stood out among everyone else that was preaching at the time. I want to pick up the story. At our last Bible study we did, how many of you were with me at the Bible study on the Lamentations? A few of you, you'll be able to know what I'm talking about. 
You remember what was going on at the time of the Babylonian exile. What, what was the big crisis? What had the people not done? What had the rulers of the Jews not done? Do you remember? They had not honored the Jubilee year. They had not given release to the slaves. They had enslaved the people and refused to let them go free to worship God. To be free to walk with the Lord like Adam before the fall. And so they were taken into slavery, into Babylon, into exile. And for 70 years, they remained there in Babylon. Until miraculously, I believe miraculously, they were given freedom, even given the money to go back by King Cyrus, to go back to the Holy Land, to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to restore the people of God in the Holy Land after 70 years. But you remember in the book of Ezekiel that when the people refused to honor God, when they refused to be in communion with Him, the glory cloud of God had departed from the temple. The revelation of God's presence was a cloud of glory, it says, that filled the inner parts of the temple. And when the people had refused, had refused to worship the true God and to honor His feasts, the glory cloud of God departed to the east, up the Mount of Olives, rested on the top of the Mount of Olives, and then departed from Jerusalem never to return. Well, I put that kind of never to return because we're going to see the return of the glory of God very shortly. When the people of God returned from Babylon to restore Jerusalem, turn your Bibles to Nehemiah. To Nehemiah chapter 9. If we want to get a sense of what was going on in the promised land after the return from Babylon, Nehemiah gives us an insight because this is the state which we find still exists into the time of Christ. Okay? Nehemiah chapter 9, verse, let's start with 34. 34. Chapter 9, verse 34. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept thy law or heeded thy commandments. And the warnings which thou didst give them, they did not serve thee in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness which thou hast given them, and in the large of the, and rich land which thou didst set before them. And they did not turn from their wicked works. Behold, now this is Nehemiah. Stop for a second. Nehemiah is one of the ones that returns from Babylon to restore the temple. To restore the law to the people of God. And look what he says. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land which thou gavest to our fathers to enjoy its fruit, its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. When the people of God return from the Babylonian exile after 70 years, I think we have this sense, at least at the time of Christ, that we have the pious Holy Family and the nice baby Jesus and all the pious Jews. Not the case. Not the case. The people of God were in a bad way. And the glory of God had not returned to the temple. If you were to walk into the Holy of Holies at the time of Christ, it would have been empty. The Ark of the Covenant was long since gone. The glory cloud of God which revealed the presence of God to the people had never returned. So the people looked forward. They looked forward to the day when there would be an, a real restoration, when they would not only receive the land back, 
but that the foreign rulers that oppressed them would be driven out and the people of God would be restored in the land which they had been given. Cardinal Jean Danielou says, at the time of the Babylonian captivity, the prophets announced to the people of Israel that in the future, God would perform for their benefit deeds analogous to and even greater than those He had performed in the past. So there would be a new deluge, a new flood, in which the sinful world would be annihilated. There would be a new exodus in which by His power, God would set mankind free from its bondage to idols. There would be a new paradise into which God would introduce the people He had redeemed. Certainly, this was the expectation of the people at the time of the Incarnation. They were looking forward with great desire to that day when the promises of the prophets during the Babylonian exile would finally come to fruition. That they would be given freedom from slavery to oppression to the foreign rulers. When the King would come and be restored, the Messiah would appear. And they knew by the words of the prophets that when that day came, God would indeed perform works analogous to, but even greater than the works He had done in the past. They looked forward to a day when they who were slaves to the oppressors would be given the opportunity for a new exodus out of slavery to be brought back into the Holy Land in freedom. N.T. Wright, a modern biblical scholar, says, anyone collecting people in the Jordan wilderness was symbolically saying that this is a new exodus taking place. Imagine the Pharisees and Sadducees, the rulers of the Jews, as people are flocking out to the very location where Joshua set up camp to retake the Holy Land. People are being freed from their slavery to the oppression to the rulers. So let me ask you a question. If Jerusalem and the Holy Land has become for the people like Egypt, then the rulers of the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, have become like who? Like Pharaoh and their Egyptian rulers. Do you think they thought too highly of that? Not at all. This is the historical context in which we find John the Baptist baptizing people in the Jordan River. But we don't want to simply stay at the historical level because John the Baptist is going to talk a lot more than about political freedom because he preached the gospel of repentance. Repent, repent, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The exodus at the time of Moses was not only about getting the people out of Egypt, more importantly, it was about getting Egypt out of the people. To get them to be freed from slavery, not to political rule, but slavery to idol rule, to false worship, to give them freedom once again to worship the true God. Freedom from sin. And this is more to the point. Yes, John was calling people out into the desert and it certainly had political overtones and political meaning. But more importantly, what John was preaching was a freedom of the soul, a freedom of the heart to free themselves from the sinful place that they found themselves. 
Look at Luke chapter 1 with me. Luke chapter 1, verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at His birth. This is John's birth. For He will be great before the Lord, and He shall drink no wine nor strong drink, and He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from His mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. Notice the problem. If they need to be turned towards the Lord, then many of the people of Israel are turned away from Him. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John begins his mission, his mission of baptizing, by quoting the prophet Isaiah. Turn your Bibles just a couple pages to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. He appears on the Jordan River. Quoting Isaiah the prophet. When is Isaiah prophesying? During the time of? When did all the prophets prophesy? Just before the Babylonian exile and during the Babylonian exile. During the time of the kings. When the people of God were living in the Holy Land but oppressed and in slavery to sin. Very similar to the situation that we find ourselves in during the time of John the Baptist. And John stands up. Chapter 3. Let's start with verse 3. And he went into all the region about the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight His paths. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. These words, quoting Isaiah, would have been words of consolation beyond our imagination. These were the words that the people of God were waiting for a prophet to say from the time of the Babylonian exile. And why is that? My great Bible study friends, what do you do in the New Testament when you read a quotation from the Old Testament? Context, context, context. Stop and turn back to the Old Testament prophecy and see what it has to say. Do that with me. Turn to the prophet Isaiah. Very quickly now. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. This quotation comes from chapter 40 of Isaiah, which is the, the hinge or the turning point of the prophecy of Isaiah. Every prophet has two parts to their prophecy. The woes or the lamentations, the condemnations. You keep doing this, you're going to go to hell, basically. All right? But if you repent, the Lord is merciful. Always two sides to the prophecy. And you'll notice in chapter 39, if you just come up a few verses to verse, uh, verse 5, uh, chapter 39, verse 5, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your, your father has stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon and nothing shall be left. We read this text together. The burning of Jerusalem and Jeremiah wept over the city. But here now, the prophet Isaiah turns. And some modern scholars have said, well, this is clearly not the same person speaking. They're two different writers. 
Okay, they'll say even that Isaiah never existed. Okay, that's nonsense. Is the prophet giving us the pre-Babylonian warning and the post-Babylonian promise. And in chapter 40, he begins now his words of consolation. That yes, indeed, though the people are taken into Babylon, though they find themselves in slavery, there will be salvation for the people. And these are the words that John picks, that he chooses. Comfort, chapter 41, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain... And what, my dear friends, is going to appear? The glory of the Lord, which had departed the temple before the Babylonian exile, when the presence of God left the people. The glory of the Lord is going to return. These are the words that the people would have hung on. That the prophet Nehemiah would have hung on. When is the Lord going to fulfill the promise of Isaiah? that indeed there will be a day when the glory of the Lord returns and the people are given freedom. Look at verse 9. Get up to a high mountain, O Sion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of the good tidings. Lift it up. Fear not, says the city of Judah. Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. Imagine for those willing to leave Jerusalem and leave Judea and head out to the middle of nowhere to hear the words of the prophet John introduce the book of consolation that today, Nehemiah, your prayer is answered. Today, the Lord is going to work a mighty work. And when He does that, Nothing less than the glory of the Lord is going to return. The glory of God is coming, John says. And when that glory comes, turn your Bibles with me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. All of the prophets, as I say, have these two aspects. The book of woes or the the, the condemnations and then that hope. When the day of the Lord comes, this is what's going to happen. And here Ezekiel, who told us about the glory of the Lord leaving, is now going to tell us what that day of the Lord is going to look like. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24. Chapter 36, verse 24. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. The spirit of God is going to descend from heaven upon man when this cleansing with water takes place and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to observe My ordinances. You shall dwell in the land which I gave to your fathers, and you shall be My people, and I will be your God. This 
is the day that they waited for. Let's turn back now to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. He did not deny. I'm not the Christ. Who's the Christ? The Messiah, the anointed one, the king. When you say the Messiah, the king, you mean the one who's been anointed to rule the people of God. He says, I'm not, I'm not the Messiah. Now let me ask you, friends. Don't, this isn't just like Bible talk, okay? When's the last time somebody walked up to you and said, excuse me, who are you? And you turned to them and said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. What's going on? We have to stop and ask ourselves, who, what, why, where, when? Stop and read it and try to figure out what's going on in the text. John certainly knew what was going on, didn't he? He knew exactly why they were coming to him. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew exactly that, what questions they were going to ask him. He was doing what he was doing on purpose to get them to come forward to ask these questions. And what was he doing? Turn to me with me back to the Gospel of Matthew very quickly. What was John doing that brought these people out of Jerusalem all the way to come down there to say, Who are you? Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. For this is he who spoke by, by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Matthew thinks it's important to describe what he's wearing. Why? Turn with me to 2 Kings very quickly. 2 Kings. I know you guys are saying too many Bible verses. You've got to get used to it. Okay? Turn with me to 2 Kings. Uh, chapter 1. Verse... Well, look, verse 2, but I'm going to just tell you what's going on. King Ahaziah has fallen sick. Okay? And he goes and he sends his servants to go out to a false priest, a pagan priest, to ask for healing. And as they're going out... There's a man that meets them on the road. Okay, we'll pick up the story. Chapter 1, verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went, and the messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said, Well, there came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you have gone to inquire of the Baal, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from your bed to which you have gone, and you shall surely die. And he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you? And told you these things. And they answered him, Well, we don't know who he was, but he wore a garment of hair cloth and a girdle of leather around his loins. What is going on? Look, John's doing this on purpose. What's the first question they ask him after, Who are you? Are you Elijah? 
They know what he's doing, and he knows what he's doing. He's playing dress-up. Okay? He's playing dress-up like the prophet of old who prophesied against the rulers that were in place at the time. And he goes and dresses up like them. Why? Turn with me to the prophet Malachi, the last prophet before the coming of the Lord. The prophet Malachi in your Bible is probably just before the book of Maccabees. Okay, Some of your Bibles might have it differently. Very short little text. The last prophet of the Old Testament before John the Baptist appears on the Jordan River is the prophet Malachi. And the last words of the last prophet, chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers. We read this, didn't we? He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. The last prophet, the last words on his lips are that before the Messiah comes, Elijah's coming back. So what does John do? John goes and gets himself dressed up like Elijah. And he gets himself down to the Jordan River. We'll talk about that in a minute. And begs the question of the Jews. Now, I want to come back to Elijah in just a second. Come back to Elijah in just a second because they ask him another question in the Gospel of John. They say, Who are you? And he says, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah. Because they know that when the Messiah comes, the words of Ezekiel are going to be fulfilled. That God will cleanse them with clean water. He will place in themselves a new heart. They will live a life of repentance and renewal. He says, no, no, I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? And he says, no. Now, Jesus is going to say otherwise, and we can talk about that during Q&A if you want. Well, what's the next question they ask him? Are you the prophet? Now, who's the prophet among the Jews? Yeah. For the Jews, the prophet, the prophet is none other than Moses. Now, why in the world are they wondering if he's Moses? Why in the world are they wondering if he's Moses? Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Chapter 18, verse 15. Before you start reading, realize this is Moses writing. Okay? The prophet of God. And what does he say? Behold, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brethren, and him you shall heed. From the days of the writing of that prophecy, the Jews looked forward to the day when a prophet like Moses would be found among them. And certainly, they were looking for him at this time. And why is that? Why at this particular time, while John the Baptist is baptizing the Jordan River, they say, this has got to be Moses returned. What did Moses do that God would raise up a prophet like him? What did Moses do? What's the great thing Moses did? He led the exodus out of Egypt. He freed them from slavery to Pharaoh. 
He brought them through the desert to the Jordan River where they were to be baptized not by Him, but by His successor. That they would walk through the Jordan River and be freed in the land of promise. God will raise up a prophet like me who will lead you into a new exodus out of slavery. And what do you think the Pharisees and Sadducees, the rulers of the Jews, who are seeing their students, their people, leaving them and flocking to John are thinking? They know exactly what John is doing. Preparing the people for a new exodus, for freedom to enter into the land of God once again. I told you that if the Holy Land, if Jerusalem has become like Egypt, then the rulers of the Jews have become like Pharaoh. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. If anyone was offended by the words of John. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. He said therefore to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by Him, You brood of vipers! Who warns you to flee from the wrath that comes? If you want to be free from that wrath, He says right here, you better change your lives. You brood of vipers! Why would He talk like that to these guys? Look at Matthew chapter 23 with me to see the words of Christ to these very same men. Matthew chapter 23. 23 verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. There's no nice Jesus, okay? Come on. Hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither enter it yourselves nor allow those who would enter it to go in. How do you enter the kingdom of God according to Jesus? How do you enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus? By water and the Spirit. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Pharisees had come down certainly to see what John was doing down there in the Jordan River. But do you think they confessed their sins and were baptized at his hand? You brood of vipers, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven against men and you neither enter that kingdom yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. The scene going on at the Jordan River is not all fairy tale and flowers. The Pharisees are coming down to find out who this man is that is stealing their people from them. And John is publicly declaring those rulers to be nothing less than Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Take a look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. John had said, Repent, you hypocrites. Bear fruit that is worthy of the kingdom. But notice what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You cleanse the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of extortion and rapacity. You blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and of the plate. First clean what's inside, Pharisees. Why is he talking to them like that? Because the Pharisees were known for one thing. The Pharisees were known because they believed that in order to get the Messiah to come, all of the people of Israel needed to 
observed the ritual purity rites that were proper to the priests alone. They believed, they were like rigorous, okay? They believed that we all get really serious. We all go through all of the ritual cleansings that the priests were supposed to do. The bath washings. Why do you think they're interested in what John's doing? They were interested in ritual purity. That was their life. And they wanted everybody to do the ritual purity, but without any true repentance in their heart. And this is exactly what Jesus goes after. Because these are the same men that will stand up in front of the Romans and say in a few short days, we have no king but Caesar. These are men who are not truly interested in following God in their heart. Brood of vipers. Alright. This leads us back then to the prophet Elijah. I want to speak a little bit more about him. What was going on at the time of Elijah that John the Baptist would try as best he could to make himself up to be like Elijah? What was he trying to tell the Pharisees at the time. I already mentioned a little bit about it. Elijah was preaching during the time of the kings. The time of the kings was just prior to the Babylonian exile. The time of the kings was about the worst possible situation that the people of God ever experienced. You remember King Josiah during our Lamentations talk. King Josiah, the eight-year-old king who was righteous, when they found the book of the law and brought it to him and said, Ah, we just found a book in the temple. You might want to read this. They had lost the law of God completely. They didn't even know it existed. This is how bad things were. This is what the prophet Elijah and all of the prophets were preaching against. That's what was going on at the time of the kings. And they had not repented. And it drove them into Babylon, into exile from the house of God. Turn your Bibles back to 2 Kings now. Because it is in this context that we start to see what John is doing out in the desert in the Jordan River. 2 Kings chapter 2. When the people of God refused to repent, when the kings refused to repent, then the righteous man, Elijah, goes on his own exodus. But notice where he is when he begins his exodus in chapter 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. They make their way from Gilgal down into the Jordan Valley. Gilgal is within the Holy Land. He's in the place of salvation. He's in the place where God had led the people to to receive their inheritance. But that place, that holy land, that promised land, that place of paradise had become none other than Egypt again. No, not slavery to a foreign king, but slavery to idol worship. Slavery to sin. They were setting up the golden calf in the middle of the holy land and worshiping Him, not just out in the desert. Things were in a bad way. And God says, get out of there. Get out of that place which had been my home and leave it. Go on in exodus. Out of the holy land this time. He leaves Gilgal in verse 4. Elijah said to Elisha, tarry here, I pray you. 
The Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. Then Elijah said to him, Tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan River. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men, the sons of the prophets, also went and stood at some distance from them. And they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water. And the water parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken away from you. And Elisha said, I pray, let me inherit a double share of your spirit. Not just make me like you, but give me a double portion of what you have. A double portion of the Spirit of God. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on, went on and talked, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah the prophet was taken up in a whirlwind. The word wind in Hebrew is also translated as spirit. He was taken in a whirlwind of the Holy Spirit up into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And then he took hold of his clothes and rent them in two pieces. And he took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the banks of the Jordan. He also hit the Jordan and crossed over it. Origen says that Elijah the prophet was made more fit to be taken into heaven after having been baptized in the Jordan River. I like to call this the reverse baptism. Elijah the prophet doesn't stand like Joshua of old and go into the promised land because the promised land has become Egypt. Instead, he leaves the promised land which has become Egypt. He goes through the Jordan River and having left behind him, freed himself from sin, cut himself off, repented, yes, cut himself off completely from a people that had yoked themselves to sin, he went through the Jordan River and prepared him for the second stage of his journey, which could only be accomplished by the gift of God. For it is God and God alone who gives us entrance into His house, into the promised land. Elijah, repenting of the people of God, was baptized in the Jordan River. And suddenly, at that moment, the Spirit of God descended from heaven and took Him into paradise. And John the Baptist is standing on the edge of the Jordan River, dressed up like Elijah. And suddenly, in that river, appears the man who will be his successor to receive a double portion of his spirit. St. Athanasius says, repentance, what John was calling people to, repentance is not enough. 
For repentance does not recall men from what is according to their nature. All that it does is make them cease from sinning. And my dear friends, baptism does a whole lot more for us than simply make us cease from sinning. For it makes us sharers in the divine life of God. It makes us sharers in the Holy Spirit. Repentance is only the first half of the action. And this is what John is doing. Calling people down to the Jordan River. Camped out on the edge of the Jordan. One scholar was saying, he must have been baptizing on the eastern side because Herod, who would have him arrested, was the governor, the ruler of that part. He wasn't the ruler of the west, of the west, what we call the West Bank. So he would have been outside of the Jordan River, outside of the Holy Land, camped there, calling people to repentance, bringing them halfway. But what did they need? Like Elijah the prophet, they needed the gift of the Holy Spirit. And without that, they would be left separated from God for the rest of their life. They waited then on the edge of the Jordan River for that day when God would send His Holy Spirit upon mankind once again, when the glory cloud of God, when the glory of the Lord would be revealed as Isaiah the prophet in chapter 40 promises. St. Basil the Great says that water fulfills the image of death and the Spirit gives us the earnest of life. Think about it. Repentance. Repentance is not something we simply say, I'm sorry. But it's when we decide with John to cut off that branch which does not bear fruit. To leave our former life behind us. To die to our old self that we might live with God. St. Basil, water fulfills the image of death. And the Spirit gives us the earnest of life. The water receives the body as in a tomb while the Spirit pours in the quickening power, renewing our souls from the deadness of sin unto their original life. And at this moment, the Son of God appears in the Jordan River and the heavens are opened and the Spirit of God descends upon Him. This is where we are thrust into the deeper mystery of Christ's baptism. Not a freeing from the Babylonian exile or the time of the kings, but in the context of God's gift of His life to mankind and the original calling of mankind as His Son. St. Basil tells us about this double nature of water for the Jews, and for good reason. In the flood, sinful man died and was buried in the waters. The dove was sent forth and hovered over the waters like the waters of creation. And Noah and his family came through those waters to receive the gift of God's life again. At the crossing of the Red Sea, Pharaoh and the Egyptians had been buried, had been covered over in the waters while the people have crossed Dryshon in faith. St. Paul says they were baptized into Moses that they could come forth on the other side of those waters, man, fully restored in the likeness of God. You want to know what happens to us when we're baptized? Look at what happened to Moses when he went up on Mount Sinai. He was transfigured and transformed into the image of God Himself to the point where He had to veil His face. People couldn't even look at Him. 
He shined with the life of God. I say it very, I'm off my notes, but I've got to say this to our Protestant brothers and sisters that are watching online or they're here tonight. My dear friends, when God wants to share His life with you, it doesn't remain outside of you, but it takes hold of you and changes you and shines out of you so that you become divinized in the image and likeness of God like Adam before the fall. The crossing of the Jordan River, the people of God left behind them their old ways, their sinful life in Moab and in Egypt. They crossed through the waters of the Jordan River and entered into the promised land, into the kingdom of God again, having died to their old life. Yes, water has this double nature of a tomb and also a womb. That we who enter it in faith die to our old selves that we might rise again with God. In the baptism of Jesus, we encounter not only Elijah and the new Elisha, not only the new Moses or the new Joshua who will lead the people, but we encounter the glory of God Himself, Jesus Christ, who has been born not to undo the Babylonian exile, but to undo the devil and his entrapment of mankind. In the Gospel of Mark, and you don't have to turn there right now, but in the Gospel of Mark, he says that at the moment of Jesus' baptism, the heavens were rent open, torn open. The power of God, the Holy Spirit, descended upon the Jordan River. Not with flowers and beautiful trees. But this was God who was coming to confront the problem which mankind faced, namely, enslavement to the devil and to sin. It is here that the fathers tell us that Jesus began His mission to save mankind. For when Christ entered into the Jordan River, He entered mysteriously into the tomb. He willingly entered into the realm of death. St. Cyril of Jerusalem says the ancient dragon was in the waters, according to Job, and was taking the Jordan into his mouth. But as the heads of the dragon had to be crushed, Jesus, having descended into the waters, chained fast the strong one, so that we might gain power to tread on the head of the serpent." When Jesus came up out of the Jordan and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him, we hear the words of the Father, Behold my beloved Son. And I think we make a big mistake when we read this text in maybe in an over-pious manner. Well, of course, I mean, it's Jesus. It's no great wonder that this Word of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is pleasing to the Father. The great mystery of the baptism of Christ is not only that God is standing in the Jordan River, but that He has taken to Himself human nature so that now we can truly say that a man is standing in the Jordan River. And to that man, for the first time since the creation of the world, God tears open the heavens and sends down the Holy Spirit which had been cast off by Adam and Eve and says, Behold, My Son, My Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the reason why Jesus came. Not that He could reveal Himself, the second person of the Holy Trinity, as loved by God, but that He could take 
us to Himself and do with us what we could never otherwise do. Please do not ever tell me that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River as an example, as a model to be imitated. Jesus didn't do anything to be imitated, or not merely to be imitated. Jesus did with our human nature what we couldn't do. Namely, to infuse into it the life of God. That God could look once again upon His handiwork and say, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We call this feast Theophany or Epiphany. It's a revelation. Did Jesus have to be baptized? No, He wasn't sinful. But yes, He needed to be baptized that He might reveal to the world God's love, which was now found incarnate in the incarnate Word. St. Hippolytus says, this is the same Spirit that at the beginning was moving over the waters by whom the world moves, through whom creation exists, and by whom all things have life. This is the Spirit, the Comforter, who is sent upon Jesus that He might show Him to be the Son of God. Turn with me very quickly, and I know I'm out of time and I'm going to finish here. Almost. (laughs) Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in the bodily form as a dove. And a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, With thee I am well pleased. And notice what Luke does. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old of of age. Being the son, I was, was supposed of Joseph. And now Luke begins his genealogy. At the moment which the Holy Spirit came down and anointed, revealed the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon man, Luke says, now you know who the man is. He is nothing less than the king of Israel. And I don't mean the king of Israel as simply the son of David. Luke traces his genealogy, if you follow down all the way to the end of chapter 3, back to Adam. Put your finger there. Verse 36 of chapter 3. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Put your finger at the last part of the verse 22. Thou art my beloved Son, the Son of God. Jesus is the fullness of the revelation of what Adam was supposed to be in the beginning. St. Basil says that Christ was baptized in the Jordan River that man might once again regain his sonship. That we, standing in the Jordan River with Jesus, could hear the words of the Father, Behold, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. With whom I am well pleased. God loves us and is pleased with us and wants to enter into a life with us. The church fathers tell us that Jesus was baptized for three reasons. Because whatever God touches, He sanctifies and makes holy. He touched bread and wine at the mystical supper. He made it the source of life. He touched marriage at the wedding at Cana. 
He made marriage a sacrament in which we are initiated into the life of God. He touched the Jordan River on the day of His baptism. And He transformed water, part of His creation, and divinized it that we might come into contact with God through the created things of this world. The second reason the fathers tell us that Jesus was baptized, that He might enter into that tomb and chain the devil's dominion over us. That those of us who have been baptized into Christ, St. Paul tells us, death no longer has dominion over Christ. Having died once, He dies no more, for He is alive. And those of us who are baptized into Him, death no longer has dominion over us. And a third reason the fathers tell us that Jesus was baptized was to meet each one of us on the day of our baptism. That reaching across 2,000 years of salvation history, the priest, the hands of God, as St. Paul says, reaches into those baptismal waters as Jesus reached into the Jordan River that day and grabs hold of our hand and brings us out of that tomb that place where Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the sinful people of the flood had died and raises us up out of that water to give us newness of life. Thank you very much and God bless you. So if you have a question, raise your hand and I'll go ahead and find you. If Jesus is the new uh, Elijah, the new Moses, why is he named Joshua? Instead oh, it's, it's very good. Remember, yeah, I, I actually had it in my notes, but I skipped it. But he is, um, first of all, Yahweh saves. Literally, he is the Savior. But regarding this particular aspect of Christ's ministry, which is really everything, but don't think of the baptism of Christ and the wedding at Cana and the crucifixion and the resurrection as separate mysteries all drawn out over history, individualized and separated out from each other. Not at all. The mystery of God is one mystery. It is the mysterious plan of God, as we've talked about in the past in St. Paul most explicitly, is that God wants to share His life with us. And don't get bored with that. He wants to divinize us. He wants to make us partakers in the divine nature. And so I can ask you the question, why was Jesus baptized? I could ask you the same question, why was Jesus crucified, died, and risen from the dead? And you know the answer, don't you? It's for us that He went down into the tomb to manifest the height and the depth and the breadth of God's love. That He was willing to descend even into the realm of death, the only power which God did not create. He went there to find us. So the mystery of the baptism of Christ and the mystery of Christ's death and resurrection are not two separate mysteries. They're two parts of the same mystery of God tearing open the heavens that He might come and rescue us from our enslavement to sin and our placement in Egypt. What was your question about? (laughs) Joshua. Yes, Joshua. I was getting there, see? Joshua. What did Joshua do? He said, well, God's going to give a prophet like me about Moses, right? So what did Moses do? The Exodus, yes, took us out of slavery to sin. But that's only in the first half, isn't it? It's only in the first half. 
Because the people were standing on the banks of the Jordan River in Moab of all places. You want to talk about enslaved to sin. Read about the life of the people of God in Moab. It wasn't good. They were standing there waiting for God to act after 40 years of wandering in the desert to take them into paradise. To take them into the promised land. But it wasn't Moses who took them, Anson. Who was it? It was Joshua. It was Joshua, the new Joshua, who now appears on the Jordan River in the exact same spot as the prophet Joshua of old had appeared to lead the people of God into the promised land. But now, not a promised land of this earth, but to the true promised land, the house of God. Into the kingdom of God which Jesus talks to Nicodemus about. No longer a a land, as Jesus says in in John... Turn with me real quick. John chapter... uh, it's right there. Why not? We'll quote the Scriptures. To the, to the, to the uh, Samaritan woman. Chapter 4, verse 23 of the Gospel of John. Chapter 4, verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. No longer in Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, now the heavenly Jerusalem. The new Joshua isn't going to lead us to a mountain of this earth. He's going to lead us to the mountain of God, the Catholic Church. He's going to enter us into the true paradise where creation is truly divinized, where water becomes life-giving and bread becomes life-giving and oil becomes life-giving, where the whole created order is changed to be what it was supposed to be in the beginning, namely the Garden of Eden, paradise where man and God dwelt together and lived together in happiness. And God looked upon His Son and said, I am well pleased with you. Where the whole of the created order is changed and divinized. That's what's going on in our church. What is going on in our church is the divinization and the recreation of creation led by the new Joshua into the new paradise. Um. My non-Catholic brother doesn't believe baptism is necessary at all. Therefore, he's not getting uh, my niece baptized, his daughter. Can you speak on infant baptism, why it's important, yeah. the, the necessity of baptism and all that? Sure, sure. Many, some, some of our Protestant brothers and sisters, very well-meaning, would say that, look, the, pers- the, the child doesn't know what's going on, and therefore baptism is not necessary. In fact, I'd say, unfortunately, many would even go as far as say baptism in itself is not necessary. It's simply my opportunity to publicly proclaim my friendship with God or that my pledge to God that I'm going to be faithful to Him. Notice the problem here is a separation. This is what I'm talking about Moses early in the shining of the face of Moses. When God loves us, God's love is a real love. It's an effective love which changes that which he loves. Love is the sharing of one's life with the other. When God loves us, he truly gives his life to us. And those that do not have the life of God will not be saved. And I'm not talking mean Sabatino. You know, I'm out here, Deacon Sabatino, so, so strict. No. God's life is the only life that is forever. Our life is not forever. We do not have eternal life by nature. God's life is forever. And unless you have God's life in you, you will not live forever, period. Not because God hates you. Because you don't have His life in you, period. That's why God came to give us His life. I've been saying this. Is infant baptism necessary? Well, let's look at the Gospel of John. 
Chapter 3. I could, yes, okay, I could go to the normal thing about they baptize whole households. I know that, and your family knows that too. They baptize whole households. That means the children too. They did. The practice of the early church all the way up until and after the Protestant Revolution. What they did for 1,500 years in the church suddenly becomes nonsense. Come on. Jesus says, I will remain with you always. Chapter 3 of the Gospel of John to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes, a Pharisee of the Jews, right? A Pharisee comes and says, Rabbi, we know who you are. And Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't, Nicodemus, you don't know who I am. First of all, Nicodemus comes in the darkness of night. In the Gospel of John, darkness and light. Those who are in darkness are not in a good place. Nicodemus will eventually find himself in a good place, but not now. He comes in the darkness of night, not in the light of God. And so he says, Rabbi, we know who you are. You're a teacher come from God. I know who you are. And Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anothen, to be born anew, to be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, not only do you not know who I am, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You can't even see it. What does it mean to be born again? Well, Nicodemus scratches his head. Jeez, how can I get inside my mom again and be born? He's scratching his head. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, don't be so, aren't you, a teacher of the Jews, don't be so stupid. Because the word in Greek, anothen, can mean two things. To be born again and to be born from above. It has two meanings. Jesus uses the word on purpose to show Nicodemus where he's at. He's at an earthly level. Okay, he says, you got to get up a little bit, Nicodemus. Verse 5, and Jesus answered him. After he scratches and says, I don't get it. Jesus says to him, well, let me explain it to you. You want to know what being born again is? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, Nicodemus, do you want to get any clearer? To our Protestant brothers and sisters, do you want to get any clearer? You want to know what to be born of water and the Spirit is? Context, context, context. Don't take a verse out of context. There is only one place in the Gospel of John in the context of what is going on where water and the Spirit are revealed together. It is the baptism of Jesus Christ. And unless you are born again of water and the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You will not enter the kingdom of God if you want your child to be saved. Don't go playing around. Baptize them into Christ. You say, what what does a child know about baptism? How can a child have faith in Jesus Christ? Because faith is an important component of baptism, isn't it? Yes, Catholics, it is. It's not magic. Faith is an essential component of baptism. And without faith, baptism isn't what we think it is. But here's the clincher. Here's the key. That in the church... We share a common life. When we are baptized into Christ, we become members of His body so that when when I suffer, you suffer. When I do good and when I sin, you are drawn down. When I am virtuous, when I live the life of virtue and of holiness, you benefit. That's what St. Paul says. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for I make up for what is lacking in in the sufferings of Christ. We are bound together in an organic body, buoying each other up in the faith, so that when you have a lack of faith, I am standing next to you to hold your hand. There is enough faith in this room to make up for your lack of faith. 
When a child comes into this world, we would never consider starving them of the earthly things they need to sustain their body. Why would we ever consider starving them of the spiritual things required to sustain their soul? I didn't mean to get an applause on that. I just, to, our, I, to those watch, baptize your kids. That's what Jesus says to do. Baptize people. They can enter the kingdom of God. Please, save your children. Okay. Preach oh, it, brother. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> By the way, Father Shear came in halfway through after his Legion meeting and said, wow, Deacon Sabatino looks really bored. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, okay, so... It was said about the prophet that was going to come, like Elijah, would bring the fathers to the children and the children to the uh, Why that particular turn fathers yeah. to children and children to fathers? Yeah, it's the, an interesting... It's the restoration. This is why we're having dinner tonight. Okay? To restore... I'm serious about that. To restore the body of Christ, to restore the family of God, to live in this earth as the beginning of a new creation. God wants this earth to be to be living, and when we say peace in the church, we're not talking, again, flowers and things, real, honest to God, peace and love that we might live together again. And that's why, that's why it's so important that we're coming together to learn the faith, to fast together, to pray together, to live together, to learn together, because we have been made one in Christ, to bring the fathers to their sons, because this is the great tragedy of sin. That it divides those who are meant to be united organically to share a common life together. How sad it is when fathers and sons are torn apart from each other. And not just fathers and sons in the blood, but in the faith, in this world. That's why the church calls this your primary mission. The primary mission of the church is to evangelize, to restore those outside back to the household of God. When we see somebody who is not a member of the church, run to them. Grab them. Don't let them go until they come kicking and screaming into the church. <laughs> Last question. Um, you know, one of the things you have mentioned. It's better be good, by the way. Oh. All right. We put a lot of pressure on me. Right. <laughs> it would have to do with one of the things you had said on our trip that really like struck me. The trip to um, the Holy Land. Yeah, yeah, trip to the Holy Land. And you said when, when, as soon as he came out of the water, he was driven in the wilderness to tempt the tempter. And, mm. and I know it's sort of related to baptism as a new Adam, but I just, I hope you would share it's that a, real quick. It's a beautiful, I know it might be a little too long, but it's, it's really amazing. No, it's a great point, and we'll finish with this. Jesus comes out of the baptismal waters, is clothed with the Spirit of God. The fathers, the fathers of the church say, when Adam was in the garden, don't think of him walking around all naked and everything. Okay, because he was clothed, no, not with clothing like we wear, but he was clothed with the robe of glory, the Holy Spirit. And when he foolishly turned his back upon God, he cast off his robe of glory. He threw off the gift of the Spirit and suddenly realized his nakedness. And not a nakedness we read on a human or an earthly level, the nakedness of being without the life of God. And so God clothed him in what? He clothed himself in fig leaves, but in animal skins to reflect his new nature. He'd become like the animals rather than like a son of God. And so Jesus, having been baptized in the Jordan, comes out of the water. The water's parting like the moment of creation. And out of those waters from the earth 
comes man now, fully restored in the life of God, and the Spirit descends upon him and robes him in glory once again, like Adam before the fall. And at that moment, in the Garden of Eden, the devil tempted Adam with food, and Adam succumbed. So at that moment, Jesus got himself hungry, walked out into the desert, as the fathers say, to set a trap for the one who had trapped us in the beginning. He got himself hungry so that the devil would look upon a man like Adam, restored in the image and likeness of God, and he could not hold himself back but to go and try to tempt him with food again. And Jesus set the trap and he tempted the tempter. And he brought down Satan that day and began his ministry of the recreation of the world. I'll finish with this point. Turn your Bibles to Luke. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 21. You know, you can see it in your Bibles, is the baptism of the Lord. Then the genealogy continues into chapter 4. And look at chapter 4, verse 1. He goes out into the desert and conquers Satan. Okay? And at the moment that he becomes victorious over the devil, in verse 16, he goes to Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth. And those that were with me for the Lamentations talk, what was the problem? What had happened? The rulers of the Jews, what did they refuse to do? To give release to those that were in slavery. So Jesus now opens His mouth and in verse 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He's anointed Me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim release to the captives. To give back that which the devil had taken from us. To give us freedom to enter into a relationship with God. To be called once again his son, with whom he is well pleased. God bless you. See you next Sunday. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be evermore manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.